Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th president of the United States gets down to work on January 21, 2017, the new commander-in-chief will face life-or-death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017 challenges and choices. Islamic State isn't going to simply disappear. It'll become more of an insurgent group. It'll become more of a terrorist group. The role of the Islamic State provinces, especially in places like Libya, in Sinai, and elsewhere, will become more important. Today, we'll hear from Matthew Levitt, a counterterrorism and intelligence expert who served in the State Department, the Treasury Department, and the FBI. Matt is the Institute's Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. He's tracked the evolution of the terror threat from Al-Qaeda to ISIS and shares with us his insights about how terrorism will shape the next president's agenda. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. What are the most important choices that will face the next president at the start of the new administration in January? The new administration is going to face a variety of challenges and opportunities in the area of counterterrorism. Some of these are going to relate to strategic choices uh, around the world, in particular as it relates to Syria. Some of these are going to relate to uh, more in-the-weeds policy decisions as they relate to uh, how we deal with the threat to terrorism at home, uh, and in particular, what we commonly refer to now as countering violent extremism or CVE policies. In the first uh, issue, uh, the war in Syria, which has morphed from a rebellion to a uh, full-fledged jihadi confrontation with Uh, severe and destabilizing sectarian undertones has caused tremendous uh, instability in the region, uh, led to massive refugee flows and uh, a generation of children who are uh, living without sufficient health care and food and and, uh, homes, uh, etc., which has long-term potential instability and has also led to Uh, the kind of massive foreign terrorist fighter flows uh, that make the foreign fighter phenomenon that we saw in the context of Afghanistan uh, or Kosovo or Iraq pale in comparison. I think if you put together the fact that Syria is so close geographically uh, to Europe and you could at least at one point literally drive uh, through Europe uh, Turkey into Syria, and then the fact that you also happen to have this uh, at the confluence of the uh, social network media revolution. Uh, Borders don't matter anymore. You can reach someone through your screen. You can talk to someone in real time who just returned to the battlefield. Uh, You can do that on mainstream uh, media. You can do it through uh, media that has uh, end-to-end encryption. These various phenomena have converge to enable the so-called Islamic State to recruit at a rate we'd never seen before. They're recruiting both based on their ultra-violent tendencies, but even more so based on the idea of 
come to an Islamic caliphate, help build it, get it on the ground level, like the original followers of the Prophet Muhammad, help build something. And so people were also drawn to the idea of being part of something bigger than themselves. All of these things present real challenges to the future administration. Uh, we have an opportunity now to do countering violent extremism at home like we've never done it before because there now is uh, a CVE task force um, that is co-chaired by the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. We have pilot programs across three cities in the United States. There are now, there's infrastructure, there's impetus, there's discussion of funding, though the funding isn't quite there yet. There's an opportunity to build something here. And it's critically important because of the changed nature of the threat that we are facing. Given where we are right now, though, with, with the CVE task force, is that an area where the next administration should be looking to improve and make incremental changes? Or is that something where the next administration should see, should see an opportunity to start from scratch and rebuild? Just this week, the White House launched a new strategic implementation plan for uh, countering violent, violent extremism, updating its, its last plan in, in 2011, taking into account not only the changes that have happened in the uh, environment and the threat environment we're facing, but also the changes that have happened structurally with the creation of this task force, etc. And I think that there really is a lot to build on. I think we need to do a lot more in this space. Um, and the question is going to be how to move forward, what things that we've been doing to move away from and what things to add on to. Some of the big questions there are going to be what should the role of federal government be in this space? And in particular, what role should there be for law enforcement as the part of government that is responsible for dealing with what is at its core uh, a battle of ideas? The FBI had a program that has now been officially terminated called uh, Shared Responsibility Committees. The idea, frankly, was a good one, working with local actors and communities, clinical social workers, teachers, librarians, etc., to try and intervene when youth in particular seem to be going down a dangerous ideological path. The problem with the program is that it, because it was led by the FBI, communities were very wary that it wasn't really so much a program intended to help them from sort of a public health perspective, but really was an effort to uh, spy through a back door on these communities. The communities themselves were uncomfortable with it, and the professionals that the FBI wanted to partner with were uncomfortable with. The model makes a lot of sense trying to find a way to do it so that the law enforcement community is not the one in charge of it is really the way forward. Well, that speaks to a broader challenge that we face in, in America, where not only culturally, but structurally, given the federal system we have, it's difficult to conduct all of government uh, work on, on anything when you've got uh, everything from the local police department, the sheriff's department, local government, state government, all the way up to the federal branches. Um, what can a next administration, a next president individually do to help overcome some of those barriers without trampling on uh, existing American norms and, uh, and, and, and political cultural expectations? I think the first thing they can do is recognize where there's overlap and where there need not be overlap between what is actually counterterrorism and what is countering violent extremism. The ability to employ a whole of government, all elements of national power method on actual counterterrorism is much more straightforward. 
the ability to do it in countering violent extremism space is more complicated in part because this is not where government is at its best, talking about ideology, talking about religion. Even radical ideology is, of course, protected within our system and well should be. But much like smoking, which is legal, but the government uh, expends a lot of effort to discourage, mostly by partnering with state and local government, there has to be ways for us to enable, empower as a federal government, the uh, state and local and community activists to be able to do what needs to be done in this space without having a huge federal footprint. And that, I think, is going to be something that we're going to see moving forward. Uh, at least it's something that the next administration is going to have to grapple with. The larger strategic issues uh, is a separate matter. How we deal with Syria. Uh, are we only dealing with the Islamic State? Are we less concerned with al-Qaeda, which frankly seems to be somewhat resurgent? Um, are we okay with the Assad regime remaining in power, even though the Assad regime has killed many, 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 many more people than the Islamic State has? And what about the other side of the equation and what has become a deeply sectarian conflict in the region? What about groups like Lebanese Hezbollah, which are not part of the Sunni extremist side of the coin, but the Shia extremist side of the coin? Uh, what about the other Shia militias that are much empowered now? in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere, and what happens with them, for example, in and after the Battle of Mosul. And at the flip side, here at home, even as we are dealing with Islamic extremism, uh, which clearly is a threat in terms of the Islamic State and al-Qaeda and the, and the, the threat of, of uh, lone wolves, etc. We also have threats from other terrorist entities, uh, domestic terrorism, uh, white supremacist groups. Uh, we've seen a sharp increase in those types of attacks here too. And if we are going to be countering violent extremism, we need to be countering all sorts of violent extremist ideologies uh, with the same vigor. Can you explain in um, layman's terms, what is the difference between counterterrorism and CVE or countering violent extremism? Counterterrorism is about stopping people who are already committed to violence from doing that violence. It's about apprehending people, uh, stopping attacks, preventing the funding and logistics for those attacks. You're talking about people who are already committed to violent acts uh, in, the, in terrorism, violent acts in support of some type of ideology. Countering violent extremism is in theory about moving the needle earlier in the process and countering the process by which people are radicalized and then mobilized to the point where they are willing uh, and engaged in uh, trying to carry out acts of violence. The problem I think with CVE and something that the next administration will definitely have to grapple with is that it has become a catch term for all kinds of things. CVE now includes international development funds. If you build a playground in a community that has been disadvantaged, that might be eligible for CVE funding because maybe if there's a, a basketball court and if they're after school pro programs, maybe a kid will be less likely to join uh, an extremist group or a violent gang. Now, it's impossible to prove whether or not that's going to be the case, but I think we have to make a distinction between what is actually countering violent extremism, CVE, and what is CVE relevant. Lots of things are CVE relevant. They're not all 
actual CVE. And then we need to figure out where on the spectrum of CVE uh, do we want to invest more or less? Where do we think we can have the biggest bang for our buck? Uh, is it earlier in the process when someone isn't yet uh, far along the path uh, of radicalization? Do we also need to invest uh, significantly, for example, at the tail end to rehabilitation and reintegration? In Europe, this is a critical issue uh, as uh, Europeans grapple with the uh, likely, uh, we're already seeing it, a return of European foreign terrorist fighters, some of whom were engaged in violence, some of whom may not have been. They were all exposed to violent ideologies, extremist ideologies. And law enforcement and intelligence in Europe is not going to be comfortable with just letting these people back into the country without any type of checks, balances, surveillance, etc., here in the United States, it's not quite as acute a problem because we've had so far fewer uh, foreign terrorist fighters who have gone and fewer still who have returned. But there is a way in which it is going to affect us, and that is that in the next few years, there is a, a generation or a class of individuals who have been convicted of uh, terrorism offenses uh, and will be coming to the end of their 15, 20, 30-year terms, and there, we have not had any reintegration, rehabilitation programming going on in our prisons, and what's going to happen to these individuals as they are released back into society. So we do have a spectrum of CVE issues that we'll need to grapple with, and we'll need to figure out how much do we invest from these very limited uh, uh, pools of resources in rehabilitation, in trying to prevent someone from being radicalized in the first place, or of course in the middle, maybe where the rubber most meets the road, in interventions. You might think of it as off-ramping, where a clinical social worker or a teacher or a librarian or the FBI, someone notices that someone is on the path to radicalization and we're able to intervene, uh, preferably in a uh, public health model to get someone off the path to radicalization before it becomes a law enforcement problem. The terrorist threat to America has evolved significantly uh, in the last couple of decades. We used to live with the threat of spectacular, tightly coordinated terrorism like the 9-11 attacks. Today, we seem to live with more diffuse threats of terrorists with a backpack bomb or a sporting rifle. You've invited many counterterrorism policymakers to address the uh, Stein Counterterror Lecture Series over the years, and they've discussed in detail how our efforts to disrupt terrorism and radicalization have adapted. So looking at where we've come, where we are now, what more does the next president need to do to keep up with or to get ahead of evolving terrorist threats? So the, 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 the threat really has evolved significantly if you think about the beginning of the Obama administration with the uh, capture and kill of Osama bin Laden, the uh, Arab uprisings where uh, it seemed that teenage youth with cell phones accomplished what al-Qaeda never did with guns and bombs, uh, but then the, the failure of the uprisings leading to failed states, of course, the conflict in Syria uh, then on top of that, overlaid on top of that, the sectarian grievances and the real and perceived crimes that uh, Sunni radicals have inflicted upon Alawites and Shia and vice versa. Uh, the media and internet, internet landscape, uh, the jihadist competition 
not only now al-Qaeda, but even more so the Islamic State and a variety of other groups that have arisen in the Syria context uh, in particular. And then because of this, the, the foreign fighter phenomenon, the returning foreign fighter phenomenon, inspired attacks, uh, lone wolves, and then uh, because of the Snowden effect, the, the dark web, metadata difficulties, uh, encrypted communications, all of this have made for a very different threat environment today than we had uh, when President Obama first came to office. Whoever next occupies the White House is going to have to look at those issues and try and prioritize how we deal with a very different set of threats. First among those is going to be Syrian Iraq. Um, Syrian Iraq and the instability that uh, those wars have created uh, have created what a uh, a, an unclassified Office of the Director of National Intelligence report, a forecasting report called Global Trends 2030, referred to as um, looming disequilibria. The report was written before the Islamic State. It was looking out to worst case scenarios in the region. And unfortunately now, all, just about all those worst case scenarios have been surpassed and they're in the rearview mirror. But that term of looming disequilibria still resonates with me. The type of problems we're seeing in the region today are not just problems for today. They're the types of things that cause problems for the long term. Think about the large influx of Syrian Sunnis into Lebanon, completely changing the demographic balance of that country. There's no likelihood those people are going to be going home anytime soon. That has very destabilizing potential implications for Lebanon, Look at the situation that Jordan finds itself in, not to mention uh, instability in places like Libya, in Yemen. The Middle East is not going to go away, and we don't have the luxury of just deciding to disengage from it, not only because we shouldn't, but be also because what happens there has direct consequence on us and our security at home. So we're going to have to deal with very difficult questions uh, about Syria, Russia's role in Syria, Iran's role in Syria. Uh, how we want to deal with the Shia militias, even as we also continue to put pressure on the Islamic State. I'd even say that the, our recent successes in uh, pushing back the Islamic State, the amount of territory it controlled, they've lost about 50% of the territory they controlled in Iraq and maybe 40% in Syria. They just lost Dabiq, which had tremendous uh, ramifications in terms of their propaganda. The Islamic State has stopped referring to its a raison d'etre and goal as as remaining and expanding and has moved the goalposts on what it's trying to achieve. But as we continue and hopefully have success in Mosul and maybe then also in Raqqa, the Islamic State isn't going to simply disappear. It'll become more of an insurgent group. It'll become more of a terrorist group. The role of the Islamic State provinces, especially in places like Libya, in Sinai and elsewhere, will become more important. The returning foreign terrorist fighters and those who are the uh, most deeply committed to the Islamic State will be even more committed to carrying out attacks. And so we're going to have, at least in the near term, a continued uh, really high threat level. Uh, and we're going to need to deal with that even at the same time that we have to start dealing with the underlying causes, which is, is Syria. There will be a desire to deal with the critical threat from Sunni extremists by some uh, by saying maybe Assad is not so bad. Uh, maybe that is the uh, devil we know that we can deal with. And I think that would be very, very dangerous. We need to remember there were foreign terrorist fighters going to Syria even before there was an Islamic State 
even before there was the Al-Qaeda affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra. And it was because Assad was barrel bombing uh, and killing Sunni uh, civilians. Uh, and so I think we're going to have to deal with this geostrategic issue, which has both military and counter-terrorist implications, even as we walk and chew gum and also deal with the tactical counter-terrorism problems uh, that have to deal with tapping phones and running surveillance and uh, making sure that uh, passenger manifests are up to date and helping our European allies monitor their borders, etc. So to what extent can the next president treat the foreign policy aspects of counterterrorism as its own strategic imperative versus to what extent is that ultimately a subset of the larger strategic challenge of the breakdown of the state system in the Middle East? It is true to say that in, in a way, the counterterrorism problem we're facing today is a subset of the strategic meltdown in the region. But counterterrorism has um, um, a momentum of its own, a, a priority of its own, politically and in terms of the psychological effect that terrorism has on a population. It's not like you can put it to the side. And so even though it is a subset of a larger issue, it is an issue of its own in its own right. So they're more intersecting and overlapping than they are primary and secondary. I had a conversation not long ago with a government official uh, on a lot of these issues we're discussing. And this person said to me, look, the place where I work has been tasked with coming up with plans and a variety of things. But can you please tell me, because no one can explain to me, what is our administration's policy? What, what are we trying to achieve? We need in the next administration to have greater clarity on that. If we don't know what it is we are trying to achieve, it's going to be very hard for the people who come up with plans to develop plans to achieve an objective that's unclear. The objective can't be limited to the defeat of ISIL because our, our threat is not limited to the so-called Islamic State. The so-called Islamic State will survive past the defeat of the so-called caliphate. It will it will change, uh, but it will continue in a different form. And we will find that there are other Al-Qaeda and other remaining threats. And so long as Syria is a festering wound in the region, others too, Yemen, Libya, but mostly Syria, we are going to have an immediate set of security threats. And so we're going to have to deal with these in tandem with one another. Well, another immediate issue that the uh, next administration is going to face uh, is Iran, which continues to be a leading state sponsor of terrorism, as well as of militias and the insurgents who are fomenting chaos across the region. So how can the next president push back against Tehran's support for terrorism and militias without risking the collapse of the nuclear deal? I think one of the problems we've seen so far since the signing of the Iran deal, the JCPOA, is that officials said that we would hold Iran's feet to the fire on human rights issues, on ballistic missile issues, and on terrorism support issues in particular, none of which were included in the deal. But Iran said that all sanctions are supposed to be removed under their interpretation of the deal, no matter what they were uh, imposed for. And that was never our understanding. We made that very, very clear. I'm told we made it very, very clear to Iran at the negotiating table. But because we didn't stick to our guns post-implementation, uh, there have been very few treasury designations, for example, of Iranian entities. There have been more of Iranian proxies, Hezbollah. There were just some of Hezbollah today, but even there, not so many. Uh, the ballistic missile issue, we've not successfully held Iran's feet to the fire on this, and we really haven't done much at all on human rights. Some have said that the reason for that is for fear that 
taking action in these areas would have rocked the boat on the Iran deal. And I feel that it's uh, the opposite, that if we had held Iran's feet to the fire on these issues that were not included in the Iran deal, we would have had uh, greater legitimacy in saying this is how we understand the deal. This is what the deal does and does not say. The next administration, I think, is going to have to rebalance this. It should say exactly how committed they are to the uh, the deal that was signed. Uh, but they should make clear that the deal uh per Iran's desire, actually, did not include counterterrorism and therefore, or human rights or ballistic missile issues, and therefore we're going to continue to hold their feet to the fire on those issues. So long as Iran continues to engage in illicit conduct of whatever kind, banks and the private sector, the financial sector is going to be uncomfortable doing business with them, providing them loans, exposing themselves to risk. Iran understands that, and it is insincere for Iran to pretend that it it this is not the case. Um, it may well wish it not to be, but that doesn't mean that it isn't. And we're seeing that right now as the Financial Action Task Force is about to have his ne- its next meeting. Iran has until next June to uh, implement a so-called action plan that they have agreed upon together with the Financial Action Task Force. Um, we don't expect to hear any uh, big news uh, at this next uh, FATF uh, Financial Action Task Force meeting. And I think Iran's going to have a very hard time implementing the action plan because of the nature of their financial system, how untransparent it is. And given the extent of their commitment to what they describe as resistance organizations, but most of the rest of the world describes as, as terrorist organizations. If the next president can make the right choices and follow through with effective policies, what would you see as a reasonable best case scenario for the state of terrorism and violent extremism when the subsequent administration takes office in January of 2021? We need to be realistic. First of all, there's no such thing as completely defeating terrorism. Terrorism is a form of political violence, and we're always going to have that. The goal of counterterrorism is not to completely defeat terrorism, terrorism as a tactic, but rather to bring it down to the tolerable threshold, tolerable levels it once was, that it's not the uh, such a primary national security threat like it has been at least since 9-11. The other thing we need to be realistic about is uh, the likelihood that we will be able to completely put the genie back in the bottle on Syria and Iraq and the looming disequilibria that those wars have created, and secondarily, the situations in Libya and Yemen. There will be opportunities for the next administration to make progress on those issues, and making progress on those issues will definitely have corollary effects to improve the counterterrorism environment. But we need to recognize that we're not going to be able to do those things overnight. So we need to come at this bottom up and top down at the same time. We need to develop strategies for the big uh, looming problems in the region, and we need to develop tactics to deal with the terrorist threat in in the homeland and, and around the world. Tactically, not only do we need to be able to deal with the problem that we're facing from going dark with uh, illicit actors from terrorists to drug runners and gangs using uh, encrypted end-to-end encrypted communication and the ability of terrorist groups to radicalize and recruit and go operational uh, using publicly available uh, social network media. Uh, But we're also going to have to put in place very serious smart CVE programs. That doesn't mean government should be the one doing it, but it does mean we're going to need to balance the need to put in place public health models 
and still at the same time also engage in the kind of counter messaging and counter narrative that undermine dangerous uh, ideologies. We should not be afraid to challenge ideologies. We're not going to ban or criminalize uh, provocative, radical, or even dangerous thought, but we should not shy away from challenging it. Again, much like the uh, smoking um, uh, analogy. It's legal, you can do it, but we're going to go to great lengths to try and make it less sexy, less appealing, uh, more expensive for you, uh, and, and, and try to do that uh, because that's in the, in the public interest, the public health interest, etc. Uh, so we're, we're going to need to do those at the same time. And as we are engaging in true CVE programming, uh, from off-ramping and disengagement to uh, rehabilitation and reintegration programs, we're also going to need to figure out ways to uh, do things that are CVE relevant. And so if there are communities that are insufficiently integrated, if there are communities that uh, where services are lacking, if there are situations which may help drive people towards extremism, uh, we should address that. Not because poverty leads to uh, extremism, it doesn't on its own. Study after study has shown that, but it can be a contributing factor. We have seen in Europe in particular, and also in the United States, a sharp rise in the number of criminals who have made the leap from criminal activity to terrorist activity. We've seen in Europe in particular, uh, a tremendous number of people who have gone from, as one Belgium counterterrorism official put it to me, from zero to hero. People have no prospect in their lives. They can't get a job. They're not doing well. They don't feel good about themselves. They don't feel like they belong in society. Uh, suddenly joining a group that makes them important. Getting in on the ground level of an Islamic state, building it up like the followers, the first followers of the Prophet Muhammad, defending fellow Syrians. For them, the uber violence of the Islamic state was was something else. They were getting involved, many of them, uh, because they were getting involved in something that was bigger than themselves and going from zero to hero. For others, the uber violence was fine enough, especially those that were truly hardened criminals. Matthew Levitt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Matt has served as a counterterrorism advisor for the State Department, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Intelligence and Analysis, and as an intelligence analyst for the FBI. He's the author of numerous reports, including the books Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God, and Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad. Matt, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.